Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Police Off the Cuff. We are here in the palatial estates of my partner in law enforcement, Bill Cannon. What's up? How you doing, Mark? You know something? I shaved, man, and you didn't shave today. Well, I actually had a couple of days off, so I chose not to shave. Chose not to shave? Is this the new look? No, not at all. Tomorrow, (laughs) I'll I'll be back at uh, this uh, day thing that I do where I got to shave. But okay. I don't know why I brought that up. I just because I had to rush to shave today before this episode. Yeah, I mean, I usually like to shave, but um, you know, I got a little lazy these past couple of days. I had a few days off actually to myself. And one of the things I mentioned to you, uh, what we were talking about before we started on air, was how many comments yesterday. I had a moment to, to just to myself, and I started fooling around and, and checking out the some of the comments that we received on on the podcast so far. And I got to tell you, man, I'm overwhelmed, man. It made me feel really, really good. And um, so I just wanted to say thank you to the people out there that leave in comments. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And um, without further ado, we brought a phenomenal, another phenomenal guest on the show today. Uh, he's a retired NYPD captain. Lieutenant. Lieutenant. Okay. But he had the money, so he made <laughs> yeah, more money than money. a captain. Oh, yeah, right. Way more money explain, than a captain. You're going to have to explain that to us. Sure. <laughs> but uh, let's bring him on because we got a lot of stuff to talk to. What's up, Jimmy Malloy? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on, guys. Is it okay, Jimmy, or James you like better? Either or. How it's about c- Jimmy James? Sounds good to me. <laughs> JJ? You know, it's funny you bring that up. It, everybody calls me. I, I, everything fits. Jim, James, Jimmy, you know, so it's it depends cool on name. who's talking to me. You know? It's a cool name. I it's like interesting. That. I call him Wild Jim uh-huh. because he's not wild. <laughs> At but, all, right? You know, he's so, very so, so he's very reserved, so it's sort of well, He's a little wild. The opposite. He's, got a, he's got a nice car out there. I noticed it right he's away. He's got a wild so, streak. As soon as I pulled up, I saw the bullet. <laughs> that's a Steve McQueen, right? Yeah, that's it. Uh, th- that was the movie called. That was a bullet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. the car they used in the race, or the car chase yeah. in Bullet. Yeah, yeah that was amazing. Yeah, that's a badass sure. car. Yeah, Tell us nice. a little bit about that car. Well, it's a nice car. It's a it's a special edition Mustang. It's the third indication of it. They did it three different times. I think 2004, 2014, and 2019. So, so which one do you have? I have the 2019. Oh, yeah. look at right. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's awesome. a nice car. It's a nice ride. And he Where just went, he went to the car dealer with hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> From the Mason job. Yeah, I retired five years ago. I retired okay, five so years five ago. years ago. Yeah, I've been planning it for five years. I've been saving Oh, you've been my planning to buy the car for five yeah, years. Yeah, when they announced it was coming out, I had my eye on it, and, uh, you know, I didn't have to take out a second mortgage or anything to do it. I made sure I did it the right way. So uh-huh. that car was almost like uh, like your retirement gift to yourself, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I sure. wanted to do that, too. I had a, a Cadillac in mind. I wanted to get a, a Cadillac. And that was my goal. I was going to put fifteen grand on a Cadillac, and then uh, kind of sort of uh, put the rest on, uh, you know, what do you get a loan out for the rest of it? Mm-hmm. I wanted to get a really nice one, you know. And then uh, I said to myself, I had an opportunity to buy into a comedy club, so I was like, you know what? Forget the car. Let me invest in this comedy club thing. I could always <laughs> get the car later. And then that comedy club thing fell through. So then I was like, you know what? Let me fix up my house because <laughs> I, actually that's more important than anything else, right? And then after I fixed up the house, I wound up getting divorced. So I should have probably got the car. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you had the car how long now? Just got it? Yeah, it? just this year, in February. Yeah. Yeah, so when you're driving months. down the street with that Mustang with the windows open, the young girls dive through the window? Well, not, not the young girls. You know? uh-huh. The older ones? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the older ones the come out, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, look, it's very clean looking. It doesn't have a lot of Mustang insignias on it, so 
I, I get a lot of people, what kind of car is that? Because yeah, usually bad. a Mustang says Mustang on it. There's a lot of cars like that yeah. now, or people choose to modify their cars. They take off the emblems of the car. Right. And that car actually kind of sort of came like that. It right? did. It looks very clean, sweet. Not many yeah. emblems, right? Yeah, it's not no But chewy. it does have that, that bullet. It says bullet on the back. Right, right. Does it have is, the Mustang thing on the front? No, nope. no. It's no. almost like having one big rope chain. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any other jewelry on. You just got one big ass. And he's not a jewelry guy anyway. Rope chain. But yeah. that's what the car is saying yeah. to you. That that thing that it says on the back, it's his bullet. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah, does. It's bad. Well, I always liked Mustangs when I was a kid. You know, I had uh, a friend that had a Mustang. You know, and the leather jacket yeah. that you were wearing when it, when you walked in, that came with the car. No, no, that's with my motorcycle. <laughs> I have a motorcycle. I, that's when I ride my bike. Oh, oh you ride the bike too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Mustangs. Nuts, that's middle aged crazy. <laughs> Why shit? are you riding a motorcycle? That's well, exhilarating, man. How riding long have you been riding? I've I learned to ride a motorcycle when I was about fourteen. A friend of mine had his dad was a motorcycle enthusiast, so. He had motorcycles, so guess what? He's going to let his friends ride his motorcycle, right? So that's where I learned how to ride. I mean, you look like you're in great shape, and you're probably a great, great motorcycle rider, but I don't know one person that hasn't gone down. Well, you know, like I said, it's it can be you got to be super careful because you do everything right and still can get hurt at it. My friend Nicky Buddha that I grew up with, I went to a movie premiere, and I'm walking next to him after we leave when we're leaving, and I notice he's got like a severe limp to the right side, like it's like a two inch (laughs) limp all the way dipping. I said, "What happened to your knee?" He goes. Oh, uh, I went down on the bike and I lost two inches on my on my right side. Oh man! I said, "Oh man, that sucks." Well, it can be I exhilarating mean, when you ride a bike. That's why yeah, I say you do it. You drive in a car, you, you feel no. I know you, I know. you feel safe, but Listen, like when you're on a you bike, lose, you got to be so aware. But of this guy, I told him, I right. said to him, I said, uh, "You're not riding anymore." He goes, "Nah, I'm riding again." I said, "What do you want to lose? Two inches on your left <laughs> side? <laughs> <laughs> Even it out." <laughs> it's a uh, so God bless you, man. I wish you the I hope nothing ever happens to you. And I, I'm sure you're a great rider. Well, I'm careful, absolutely. I've taken courses with it. You know, do you the, ride the uh, what are the, the speed bikes or Harleys? It's a Harley. Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. It's, it's, a, it's called a street bob. My but version. now the Harleys yeah. go just as fast, right? Most of them, anyway. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not like I said. I don't have you the big screen hog? on it. Yeah. I, I don't have the windscreen on Get it. Get your I, motor room. Right. I ride on like a nice warm day. You know, I'm not taking out in the rain. I'm not uh-huh. a guy driving out the Sturges on my bike. You know, I'm not doing that. You know, but. I enjoy riding. I admire it. you, man. I admire you. I just know that I'm horrible on a bicycle. I probably even worse than <laughs> I am. <laughs> Full of bicycles, man. So uh, I'd stick to the car. But but on this day, on a day like to this, man, you get on your motorcycle. Do you have a little stereo on your motorcycle? No, no, I don't have that. No, you play no. Purple Rain. Remember when <laughs> Vince is going up the mountain? <laughs> Those are the road bike. bikes. That's like driving a camper. Some guys like that. That's a big bike. What kind you know? of Harley do you have? I, it's called a Street Bob. It's a Dyna. So it's a so it's, it's a cruising bike. It's not a it's, it's not, not one of the road the, bikes. It's not it's the not big the one. Big, uh, yeah, we can't. exactly with the radio and all that. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, big saddlebags. I like those. Right. Ba- I like those ones. Right. No, they're impressive. Yeah, I like absolutely. the ones with the two wheels in the back. <laughs> oh god! And the hood over it, <laughs> and the four doors. <laughs> you know what? Throw another wheel on the front too. <laughs> so, uh, so you got the car now, and you've been retired five years. Five years. And yeah. you were a lieutenant. I was a lieutenant. Yeah, and I made. I remember the- you. Oh, all right. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Westchester. My family's originally from the city. You know, born in the Bronx, lived in Highbridge in the 4-4. Oh, Highbridge, yeah. Uh, they moved out when I was really young, like one, two years old, moved up uh, into Westchester. There's a lot of people going over there to take pictures at that staircase. Yeah, because it's right in uh, the Joker, right. yeah. And I think there's a lot of people getting robbed now. Like, <laughs> right after they take the I picture. Remember, the I remember stairs. that staircase from working in street crime in the 4-6. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, I thought wow. that was in Washington Heights. I know they have one in Washington Heights, too. Yeah. 
But you, so you, did you actually grow up in the Bronx? Or your, no, your no, family I moved, family moved up when I was really young. So I grew uh, up in Westchester in Cortland, not far from here. That's where I went to school and high school. Which uh, private school did you go to? I, no <laughs> private schools. <laughs> Public school, I went, I went to SUNY Geneseo well, we for college. To Trin- what was the, <laughs> Trinity High School. What was the uniform like? When no, did you no. start going to school with girls? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, he seems right, like so a private Chester. school kid, doesn't he? Yeah, he's squared like, away, Like man. Chaminade on Long ah. Island. He looks like a Chaminade yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Like, like the quarterback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> quarterback, he's not that tall, but he's then... fast as shit. We can't catch him. <laughs> I went to you Chaminade when into you Yale. I did. Were you good in sports? <laughs> I, I, was, I had to work hard at it. I was kind of like, uh, I, I, I played football since I was very little. Oh, baseball. I played uh, lacrosse and baseball in high school. You didn't play basketball? And wrestled. No, I didn't. In the wintertime, I was a wrestler. You look like a Chris Mullen type. No, I... <laughs> I didn't get into basketball actually. I'm kind of a fan now, but my sons, as they grow up, I have a 14 year old and 18 year old. They're a big basketball yeah, fan. The so they, they like turned me into basketball. Now. So going to games. Basketball and did playing. the right thing. They yeah. marketed it with the music and the rappers and all that stuff. They got all the kids in love with it. And it's something that you can just go to the park and play. You know what I'm saying? If somebody's going to have a ball there or you could bring your own ball. Baseball, you need a bunch of equipment. Football, forget sure. about it. Yeah. And, then, and I've been involved with martial arts for about 26 years now. What kind so of martial arts do you do? Uh, taekwondo. Oh, really? It's Korean martial art, yeah. Yeah, man, he could probably kick the shit out of me. <laughs> Literally. Can, no, I'm six foot four. Can he reach up with that high it's still? A, it's all defensive. Well, you don't want to reach high for something like but I'm that. Just saying, you go low you? with that. Yeah. You go can low. you? Yeah. I keep my legs spread. I did a little martial arts too. I keep my legs spread wide apart, man. Especially <laughs> against little guys with the with the guys rushing in right now to take you down. You're not taking me down, <laughs> I keep my legs far apart, man. Well, more sure, it's you got know a good right here. It's a club of lang right here. It's a lot different. I mean, there's so many benefits to it. You know, not just the physical side of it. You know, the breathing techniques, the meditation, all. Yeah, the I just like to fuck side. people up. Right. That was my goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in a real fight, everything ends up on the ground. So you're yeah. you're standing there. You're not. You don't have really time to be. When you know, I was a kid growing up, man, fights were so much easier. It was like. He got into a fight in a bar. It was like three fights. Bam, bam. You know, that was right, it. Right, Not right. this whole, like, guy climbing on you. Now he's on <laughs> my It's like, dude, man, I'm with my friends. Come on, man. Let me go, please. It's jujitsu stuff. Yeah, and not only like, that, but you used to go outside, you'd have a fight, and you'd come back in. Well, they always tell the you, the world. check the guy's ears before you fight him. I never he's fight the guy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's going no. the other way. <laughs> that just means he likes to fight a lot for fun. <laughs> no way. I see a cauliflower ear, man. You got it, buddy. You got it. You win. Whatever it is, you win. I didn't even want to. And plus, the whole thing. I know Andrew does uh, the. Didn't you do, used to do it, the grappling? There's a lot of time spent rolling around with another dude on the on the mat. I, I'm not. I, I don't want to do that. I really don't. Yeah. I don't care. How often do I get into? I don't want to roll in. And then he sweat. And they're usually hairy. <laughs> the geese get wet. Like it's just gross, man. And then you're down there forever. Oh, anyway, but I'm sure you could. Uh, so 27 years with the Taekwondo. You were an instru- I guess you're a master, right? What do you? Yeah, yeah. I just actually just tested for you, that rank uh, you, this uh, month. Actually, are you an instructor as well? I do. The school I teach at, uh, I, I go to. I also uh, there's an instructor program I've been part of for a few years, which is really uh, really influential. It's great. You want to plug that or? No, not not really. I mean, well, it's used martial arts, or it's called Hanek Martial Arts in Terrytown. Is the uh, he's got five schools oh, yeah, in, in a different place? Yeah, in Terrytown. I used to go to school in Terrytown. That was the first boarding school I went to. It was called Saint uh, Vincent's de Paul. Right. Yeah, my mother dropped me off there in the third grade. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I thought yeah. that's where you gave your old clothes to, Saint Vincent de Paul. Yeah, but they had a school up there. The nuns were really nice, man. It was a, a whole school. Actually, I didn't like that. I didn't mind that school at all. It was nice. Hmm. Once I got used to it, but that's where the school is, huh? Yeah, Terrytown. It's great. Do they still great have town. that Howard Johnson's there? 
Howard Johnson's. There used to be a Howard Johnson's there. there. There is one down by the train tracks. There's a hotel. I'm not sure if it's a it's a Howard Johnson's. Or not. Yeah, I remember. I uh, my mother didn't come to. Uh, there was a Christmas show we did, and it was a snow weekend, and nobody came up to get me. Every I was the only. They left three you there? kids. Three kids out of like 150. Nobody came really. Like most parents came Saturday morning to get their kids, and I'm mine. Was that how Boys <laughs> Town was started? I, was, I wrote <laughs> you it were out. The first wow. one. And then it was the show on Sunday, our Christmas show, and some other parent felt bad for me, so he took me to Howard Johnson with his kid, and then I destroyed the place, man. They had these plates where you could push down. You know, there's like a spring. Or you just when you go to the salad bar, you could pick up a plate, and then it just kind of. Yeah, yeah. I pushed it all the way down. All the plates flew up, broke all over the floor. <laughs> Yeah, and then I had to write a letter to um, apologizing to the father and to uh, to the school. Wow. Yeah, I was a bad kid. I get involved with it because I, I moved to Terrytown. I started martial arts in a school up in Cortland, and I didn't know any different. I went but in, Cortland down here, right? Cortland, yeah, in Cortland, you know, near Peekskill. So okay. I went to the school, and I didn't know any different. It was a black belt teaching a class. I'm like, yeah, I want to do the martial arts. This is how it is. And then I moved to Terrytown. I was looking for a Taekwondo school. And, it, and just as luck happened, this young Korean fellow was opening up his first school. So I got into the first class that he had. And then I was like, wow, this is what it's really all about. It was authentic. You know, he's a Korean military guy that came here, taught in a school in Long Island for two years, you know, honing his English, did some marketing, mm-hmm. said, hey, there's no schools in the area here. And now he's built it into five schools. And, you know, I go there, like I said, 27 years, and we'll go do a drill that we never did before. So he keeps it fresh. Mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, you think he's just making this shit up? No. <laughs> I thought I so sometimes. I think they go back in there and you, like, know? you know what, I got to no, Let me try this shit. <laughs> Does he shoot rockets on the weekend? <laughs> yeah, or what? Be, I don't know. But it was, it was pretty you know, I took Taekwondo when I was a kid. I remember there was a place on Dittmar's in Astoria. And I remember one thing. I always thought it was a Mau Mau's kick. Because the guy was Korean, and uh, he used to, instead of saying roundhouse kick, he said, okay, now, Mau Mau's kick, begin. <laughs> and I always thought it was Mau Mau's kick, but right, it was right. roundhouse kick. <laughs> that's what I remember from my martial art experience. So you're still going there, and that's how you stay, stay in yeah, it's shape. Like way. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, See, that's great. why you don't play around, man. I'm not, just be nice to everybody. You don't want to get into, <laughs> how do you know, like 27 years, man, just practicing <laughs> something. Oh, so... Uh, did you teach it on the job? No, not on the job. That was all, you know, was, that was one of the things, uh, you know, it's something that you, we, we look back at as self-care. It's one of those things I had that going through 24 years on the department that. What, those, what year did you come on? I went on in 91. Okay. I came on in 92. I was in 92. I was a midnight class. July 30th. So you're trying to say 91. that martial arts training helped you mentally getting through the job? Well, without a doubt. Like, you learn, you know, like I said, I'm involved with the, the POP organization too. And one of the things you learn through training in that is like self care. You need those avenues that you can vent out because the job is negative in so many ways. So you got to uh, do something for you, something that makes right. you feel good every exactly. day. Exactly. And, 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 you know, by random chance, that's one of the things I did for a long time that helped me, amongst other things, other hobbies that you have to have. And, when you don't have that, that's when, you know... Like hanging job. upside down in your closet? Yeah, things like whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs> well, who did that? Who no. did that? No. Did you hang it? Did you, Not me, no, I never That's actually that. good for you. It's actually good for your back. I joke, though. Oh, I didn't get it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, but there's there's a lot to the martial arts. If I could just talk about it for a second, it's just it's not just the, the physical techniques involved. Like when uh, someone goes to become a black belt in the martial or taekwondo, they're very similar. Uh, but there's an underlying theory behind it, and it's called Hanik Ilgan, and it means just service for the betterment of mankind. That's the theory behind the martial arts. So, and that goes back to the history of how it started. It's a lifestyle. So when you test for a black belt, there's 10 belts to get the black belt, mm-hmm. and it takes about three and a half to four months between each belt. 
and each belt has a strict curriculum of kicks, punches, a, a choreographed set of moves and blocks. There's terminology you have to know, and each belt has a principle, like white belt dishonesty, respect, mm -hmm. perseverance, all the way up. So when you test for a black belt, you're testing for all 10 belts' curriculums, mm -hmm. and then you have to learn... Uh, like write a report on the history of Taekwondo. You have to research it. You have to write about what each of those principles mean to you. And then what are you doing to f fulfill service? How are you helping out mankind? So you're turning in three written reports. You're doing the curriculum test. Then there's an outdoor test where you're running five miles. Mm -hmm. And there's certain confidence tests as well as a meditation test. So it's really, it takes, takes over two weeks to do. It's like four, three or four days, the entire test that you get graded on these 15 parts. Mm -hmm. And then you become a black belt. So wow. it's, a, it's a it's a it's a heavy process if the school runs That's the right way. That's a beautiful thing, though. Yeah. It really is a beautiful thing. And when you meet people who are involved in the martial arts, and they're serious about it, you always you're meeting a special person because they always they always have a good demeanor about them, you know. And so you that, know, God forbid, if I get too drunk and start acting <laughs> stupid. No, but so Jimmy that mentality back. though helps you get <laughs> wah, wah. diversity. Oh, absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. And and then the physical you make side. Make noise when you do that. Wah, wah. Yeah, yeah. The key wah, up. Wah. It's called key up. So everybody has a different sound when you exit. Like the loud yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah. And it's great seeing the little kids yeah. and you watch them spar for the first time. You know, it builds up confidence. You know, because you know, I'm, I'm not a big guy. I'm five seven. When I went through high school, you know, they're big guys. I played mm -hmm. football and I wrestled, but still, physical big guy is a big guy. When yeah, you're yeah. younger, you can get intimidated. But you watch these kids go out there and they're, you know, it could be five to ten years old they learn how to spar they're first scared and then all of a sudden they get hit and they realize hey i didn't it's disintegrate right, i didn't right. disintegrate so the bully in school is like what are you gonna kick me i got kicked 30 times last night move right. on you know exactly you know it's exactly. really impressive to see there's something yeah honestly that i remember that too from getting punched from boxing in the face where god forbid he come into an altercation it's like what are you gonna do hit me Right. You get hit every day. Right, exactly. Right. You know, yeah. and you learn how to look at somebody while they're swinging at you, try to get away. And even if it hits you, if you're looking at it, watching it, subconsciously you do something with and get your jaw out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, you just take a sure. flush on the face. You know, I always it's not the end of the world. Also, my son was, um, my oldest son was a wrestler, and he probably had 150 to 200 bouts. Wow. Because he was in a club, oh, too, you know. That's a lot. And the thing is, I thought, like, how, what amazing training. Because now you're never afraid to get into a right. fight because you had 150 to 200 fights. And wrestling is, to me, one of the toughest sports. Oh, yeah. Is. Everybody it's, it's intense, yeah. 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 Martial, uh, MMA, the, a lot of these guys, the best guys, they're back the best wrestlers, oh, yeah. yeah. Whatever you start off with. Sure. You know? yeah. Learn and, all you know, the They stuff. don't have a good wrestling program in New York City. They really should. I know there's a school Westchester. in Jersey. I think it's Wagner. Jersey has great wrestling, but... Uh, New York City doesn't. Mm. Westchester has great. Long Island has great. It's like wrestling. lacrosse. Most places don't have lacrosse, but yeah, New York true. has great lacrosse. Right. Well, I, I got into wrestling in high school because uh, a freshman football coach came in. Uh, he was a new teacher, and he was doing freshman football. But he was really the varsity wrestling coach, and the pr high school had no program, so he just recruited all. He went, "I'm going to coach freshman football, and I'll build a program." He made all the guys. You don't play basketball, you're wrestling. Yeah, you know, and exactly. that's what he did. And we built this huge wrestling program out of that over four years, and it, it became really successful. Yeah. Also, wrestling is another great discipline. Everybody I know who was a wrestler in the past is a great person. They're successful. They're the, successful. Yeah, yeah. It, it translates into other fields. Well, it's it a really discipline. Does. I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah I think does. a lot of it is just the discipline. Even if any type of organized sport too, some place where you got to show up and practice. You got to be there at a certain time, dressed apart. You sure. got to, you know, and and in the boundaries of that of that game, there's rules. So you start learning all these things. Uh, it's it's uh it's great. It's great for kids, man. It's definitely great for kids. And um, so you came on in 91. 
and you worked your way up to being a lieutenant. Where, where did you work? Well, the first, I came in in April 91, and I was a uh, tri-agency test, you know, it's before the merger, so I got in transit, the lottery. Oh, so, wow. Exactly, and you, and you just commented on it, and I'd like to say, I'd get, I'd go to places, and people go, hey, you're a cop, what precinct you work? And I'd say, uh, oh, transit. they go, oh, so it became the O-Police. Yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, it was the O-Police. But that, I mean, no one wanted <laughs> oh. to go to transit. No, you I don't want people to. people right? want Nobody to wants to go there, and then housing. nobody wanted to leave afterwards. No, well, that, that was just it. You know, yeah. When you got there, you know, and at that time, you were working for the transit authority. So mm-hmm. you go to a roll call, you're turning out, you know, you get a booth relief. So the token booth clerk could come out and empty the turnstiles of the tokens, you know. So mm-hmm. that's your job. You were really... Guarding the token right. booth. Yeah. But there was a lot, you know, it was, you know, 91, there was still a lot of crime, obviously, in the city. For those there, of, and, uh, for our younger audience, a token booth is oh what? Oh, God. A token booth. That's where you, you go into the subway and there's actually a person sitting in like a fishbowl that's like arm. It's super thick. You couldn't shoot through this thing. And there's steel doors that are bolted lock. And they're told never to come out unless there's somebody, a police officer there doing the booth relief. And you would actually have on your roll call booth relief. So What was the, inside the booth? It was a person. And what they would do is have two tokens that you would use to buy to get into the subway. So you so had a turnstile. no style, metro cards back then. No metro card. You had a little token. And it was a unique little device. It looked like a coin that you would slide into the turnstile that would let the turnstile turn over. And they took cash. Right? And they took yeah. cash, so you would buy it. So they had yeah. money there, and the tokens were worth a lot of money too. So when they were delivered... Tell, was, them, what, tell them what a token sucker is. Well, that's, <laughs> I love well, that's something one. we used to deal a lot with. What <laughs> happens is people, well, guys would go, and girls actually would stuff up the token, uh, the turnstile, where you put the token with paper, newspaper or tissue or a napkin. And as people would put their tokens in, it wouldn't go through. So it wouldn't work. It kind of malfunctioned, and they'd come back, and then they'd suck out the tokens, tokens out of the token clerk, out of the turnstile. So you know what transit cops used to do? They used to spray that with mace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that becomes an issue, and then you'd have a token, you know, a, a token booth clerk would call, "Hey, the guy's stuffing it up again," and yeah, he'd yeah. get there, he'd be gone, and then they come and try to clear it out. But and they and another thing they used to pull it out was the street sweeper. When the street sweeper would go by, some of those bristles come off. They're these long little metal things probably about 18 inches long they would use those to stuff into there and pull the tokens out as well they do that on, on pay phones as well they do the same thing to a yeah, pay phone yeah. stuff it up and then you pay use, phone they don't exist anymore they don't use it you do the same concept the, to a pay phone people put coins in it wouldn't work and then they'd use those uh little brushes that would fall off the you know, street I, sweeper and they'd pull them out and it was i remember one time in two four anti-crime i don't know if you were there we see these guys by the phone and we're like, what the hell are they doing? The guy had a crowbar and was actually ripping the whole phone. <laughs> yeah. And then they were bringing them up to a building uptown and throwing them off the building to get the change out. Sure. Oh like you God. can't make that shit up, right? Well, even, <laughs> even when that happened is that, you know, they got away from, you know, tokens and went to Metro cards and, you know, you build a mouse trap, the mouse gets smarter. So now Metro card machines, people would steal credit cards, go down and max out a credit card and buy all these Metro cards and then sell the Metro cards. And then it would they would devise it later. So okay, now you can't just use a credit card. You got to enter in like a zip code when you have a credit card, right, so right. you can't use it and that kind of thing. But that took a long time to Layers do. Layers of security. For How long years. did you stay in transit? I was in transit almost three years. So what happened is I got in '91 and I I went through training and you got assigned through a field training officer and I went to a F-T-U. transit. FTU. I went to a transit district and I got assigned to this guy, Van Nessen. It was great. And I went everywhere. He was an overtime guy. So you'd collar everything that moved and he'd stay with you the whole time. So he's making a ton of overtime and uh, and you're learning the job. So what was you, the worst train you ever worked on? The worst train was probably the L train out in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, by yourself it, too. By right? yourself. So what would happen is after field training, you get assigned as the new guy to TPF, Tactical Patrol Force, which turned out of 42nd and 8th Avenue. And it was citywide train patrol. 
uh, four days on, two off. So your days off changed every week, and you worked eight at night to four thirty in the morning. Ouch. And, that, and that was under Dinkins' cop on every train. So they had to have a cop on every single train from eight at night to four thirty in the morning. So you had all the new rookies that came out. That's where you went, and I was there for almost two years. And uh, it was a learning process. It was great. Like who in, was in the a way. guy Mark that was in transit? There's the comic, the rest that he would say, "You ride while we hide." Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, there was a lot of that going on too. But you know, depending on who it was. But you know, I wanted to learn learn the job, so I was very active as a, as a young cop and getting out there. And I, I was lucky to have a good field training officer because he he didn't just take me to a room and okay, this is where we're sitting until we got to go out. You know, I actually went out and learned stuff. And uh, did you hide behind the door? Of course, you had to do that. Was you have operations? You do that. You go yeah. out and you go in, into like the closet and you watch the turnstile and then you do a TUS sweep. It say for those of, service for sweep. those of you who aren't from New York, um, it, people used to jump the turnstile constantly. Jump the turnstile, not pay and their not fare. pay their fare. Right. And so uh, I remember we used to go like it would be like maybe ten, fifteen kids from my neighborhood leaving a story and we'd be taking a train into the city and we'd be all hanging out like just. Right, be, right by the token booth and waiting for the, the train to come. And then we'd all jump over the, the turnstile at the same time because there's no way you can get all of us. Right, right. And then you'd always hear the guy in the token booth, pay your fare. <laughs> like, no enthusiasm. Really. He just had to say right, it. Right, I think right, right. Pay your fare. <laughs> That's it. Well, we're all... But you know, so back then, if you got arrested over. on a Friday for jumping the turnstile, you could be in jail till Monday. Till Monday. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. had it scoped out. You looked, right. out, you looked yeah. up and down. There was no cops around. We were... Listen, so uh, so used to, but the way you'd get caught in some of these stations would be, there would be these doors. You know, you're on a platform, you don't know where that door leads, but there's a hole in that door, a peephole, and that was like you guys had a bathroom in there and stuff like right. that, right? And they, and they do an operation. You go out, and sometimes it would even be, uh, you know, cause you have a, a certain station, and there were a lot of complaints about, you know, whether it was crime ridden or just the, the fare beaten, because the MTA ran it, so. You know, it was a business for them too. So mm -hmm. again, you're enforcing their rules. And you, when you wrote a summons to somebody, it was a tab summons, transit adjudication bureau. They didn't go to criminal court; it went to like a transit court. So, and if you didn't show up again, it would be you know a warrant could be issued. Mm -hmm. But that money went back to the transit authority if you did pay the summons. Um, if you didn't pay it, it would build up as a transit recidivist, and uh, and you would be followed up that way. But you had those rooms, and they would actually go out, and you do a sweep. You'd sit in that room, and you wait, and then you jump out. It's like surprise, great, and you grab people. And where, where did you put them when you grabbed them? You, you put bring them, in them the back room? in the room, and it's like it's like a pee van with uh, narcotics. You collect it. And take, <laughs> how you many? How many did you usually get? Before? Well, you had the daisy chain, the whole thing. So depending on how many people you had on the operation, what was would it depend six on how to many. each daisy chain? Yeah, you try to do that. <laughs> so you go out with a sergeant and like four cops, and everybody would get at least one collar. So everybody get on the shoot. Transit right. got the the nastiest collars too, man. Well, of course, people in the transit were like, you know, you know. One of the things that I did you I, see somebody I, jump to her turnstile and go, nah, let him go, let him go. Fuck oh, that. Yeah. I'm not oh, spending yeah, without yeah. a doubt, without it's a doubt. Weevils yep. crawling <laughs> off them. You know, during the field training, you did get exposed to some of the units, and they had a homeless outreach unit in transit. Oh, they that's still where do. John the rest of work. And man, I'll tell you, that was that was like going to another world uh, when I walk, walked around with those guys because you go down to the end of the, these these platforms where there's an express train and the local. So the platform's in the middle, and the trains would eventually, tracks would eventually come together as it went deeper in the tunnel. So there's this huge area between the express and, and local tracks. So you'd go back, and the homeless people would live there, and they had little encampments build up. And that's where they lived. And they oh, were like, the they were, yeah, there were beds, mattresses, and shanties, and food. And I mean, it was, it was like another, and they'd go down there and say, okay, guys, we're going to clear you out today. And you bring them out, bring them to a shelter, and then eventually to come right back. Because it was, mm -hmm. that's where it was warm. 
and uh, you know they would they would take and the, the purpose of moving them around was just so they well, don't get comfortable there, right? Because you get you know a lot of people get hit on trains, and a lot of those people hit by trains. You go on a subway train, you'll see you know 127 people were struck. But by is trains that bad when they get hit by the train? Yeah, that's, that's pretty <laughs> no, bad. It's good. Yeah. No, it's good. <laughs> you know, the, it's I mean it, the, the problem solved. The way, the way the trains work, you you have you know the third rail is there, but there's no connection directly to the third rail. The, the train cars have these little shoes Yeah, what that is that out. third rail? I never understood that. The, the third the rail... Electricity for the, the train. Yeah. No, I know, but it, how does it... Act, which one is it? So it's the one that's got a wooden cover Piece over it. Okay. So if you yeah. stand on it, you know, you, you theoretically there's some protection, but obviously you don't want to But if you get under there, if you touch that rail, that, dead, just, man. You, that's yeah. it. If you touch the third rail and you're grounded, it's going to go through you. I mean, you could walk, like a bird could walk on a third rail. It's not going to get electrocuted because it's got to be grounded. So one foot's on the ground and one foot's on the oh, rail. You're then, you're then you're screwed. But what has the train works, there's these shoes that stick out of the side of the train and it arcs. The power jumps from the third rail to the train. It mm -hmm. doesn't like the, the, it's not a direct connection like your Hot Wheels or, mm -hmm. or you know, a little race car so what happens is you look in the subway train uh tunnel and there's markings on the wall that you have to be aware of them it's red and white markings like a candy cane means there's no space and you look there's little oh, alcoves I cut out yeah. so if you're a worker and a train's coming by you could step back into this little this little alcove and you'd be protected well obviously some of the homeless people down there don't realize that and, not yet and some of them would be out there collecting you know copper wiring they'd lay wiring across the tracks the train would cut it and then they'd take it out and sell it to scrap for money so what would happen sometimes is they'd be in an area that wasn't clear and the shoe would come by and it would take them off at like the wow. knees down. And then you'd have somebody so down you'd and you'd see, get a man you'd see under. people like that? Yeah, you get a man under and then what happened, the transit issue would come out and they'd bring these huge airbags put under the train and they'd fill them up with air and it would lift the train car up. Then they'd go out and pull the person How long does that under. take? It takes a while. they got That's to get annoying. there first and then, uh, you know, to lift the train and would you train ever, service. Would you ever chase someone down the track? Never. I you would know never who do did it. that, and you yeah. know him. Many Manny Sosa. Crazy. He chased it's a insane. guy from 110 to 96th Street on the tracks and got him, and got yeah. the guy had a gun. You, I you, was like, Manny, you are out you of told, your mind. You're told never to I do would that. Never man. ever do that. Because there's so ever. many, so many things down there that could, you know, not oh. only that. So rats. if somebody falls on the tracks. You're told not to go down there. You got to just advise the tr the, the right. well, next train coming. Well, for, well, even when the train is coming, that's that's a tough thing because for that train to stop, it takes quite a distance to stop Why? the train because it's such a large object moving with the momentum to stop it. It can't stop. There was immediately. a video on TV uh, on you. Um, I just saw it on on the internet, and um, the guy faints. He falls off the wall. He's leaning against the wall. He faints, but he faints forward, and then his head hits a lady that's standing in front of him, and she goes off the right. Uh, um, off the platform, falls onto the tracks, and then this is in uh, Buenos Aires, I think, and they're waving at the train. The people are, yeah, obviously, they're scared for this lady because she's not moving at all. She's out of it. And they're waving, and the train comes to a slow halt and doesn't well, run her over. He misses her by, you know, well, a couple good. of inches, but he was able to stop. Well, well, well there's a couple of things to, to avoid it, actually, and you obviously you have to be aware of it and be around it. When you look at a subway track, when you look down, there's the... The railroad ties are actually cut in the middle. There's a there's a canal in the middle mm -hmm. of the track. So if you were on the track, you could lay in that, and the train would go over you and not hit you. Oh, okay. That's also, good to know. Also, under the platforms, you could roll underneath the platform itself because the platform yeah, yeah, right, is right, a little yeah, space there. That, yeah. So there's a couple oh, you don't of things. Do that. That's nasty. No, yeah. obviously, but rather than have a train run over die, you, yeah. you know, there was actually a story, and it was a while ago. It was probably in 2004. This fellow was actually brought down to the uh, the State of the Union address. He was a fellow in New York and, and and someone had fallen on the tracks and a train was coming in. It was coming in fast. He jumped down and laid on top of this woman in that trowel. And the train came over that. and he survived. And, and they actually brought him down to say, this guy's a hero, man. Yeah, it's I incredible. Remember, I think I remember. he had that situation awareness to realize wow. rather than step back and go, wow. You ever you see know, somebody get happen. electrocuted? 
I never saw someone get electrocuted, no. I've seen where uh, in the paper stories where the person gets like almost like cut in half, like half their body is, well, obviously we're talking about an elevated train now. Right. That's where it's not a subway. It's not sure. underneath the ground. It's it's on top of the ground. And I remember seeing somebody like fall and somehow their their upper body's done, but their legs are still going. I don't know, man. It's, well, that's, it's, that's reminds me. A lot like, of scary things happen. Yeah, on this train, space man. cases too. That's the space between the subway car and the platform. Sometimes somebody slips down in there. Oh yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the train moves and they get corkscrewed in, rillered down. So mm-hmm. they're they're. They're literally disembowelled. I know somebody whose ankle know. got caught in there it's recently. Horrible. Oh, yeah, geez. it's hard to do. And now the tr- the subway doors, they're very, very strong. Like, you used to be able to, like, kind of sort of hold them and wait for somebody to come up the stairs. You can't stop that door now. No. It, when it hits you, like your shoulder to move, it's, they're much more powerful, those doors. You know, I had, I had I knew a sergeant. He was a friend of mine, and uh, he, uh, yeah, I got to know him when I first got on the job, and he ended up uh, getting three quarters and getting off the job, but... Um, during the place, there was there was a, a man under, and he was you know the guy was hit by the train, and, he, and it was it was he was in pieces literally. And the issue comes, and they collect; they have to collect the body parts, obviously, you know. And uh, one of the ESU guys was I don't want to say he was joking around, but the gallows humor on our job, and you know they found the guy, you know, picked his head up, and was like, "Hey, look what we got here, Sarge." And it just you know, the sergeant, it just didn't sit well with the guy, man. He was it really it really affected. And him. that's what made him get off the job. Yeah, eventually, he just like he didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I think, was, and, and he was like, "Hey, listen, you know, you just, it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's, not for it's stresses, man. you know, stresses." Yeah. And well, it, we it, talked about things. this. It's like a defense mechanism, you know, that humor that not a dark about. humor. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, nobody really, there are all these tiny little PTSDs. You were mentioning that you do a lot of work with Papa, but before we get to talking about that, um, let's just a couple more questions sure. about transit because I've always been fascinated about it. You mentioned the, the homeless people living in there, um, but you didn't you didn't go down there, right? That was the homeless outreach program. No, that, exactly. Right? Homeless outreach would do that, and they, there's still a homeless outreach unit that does that. But like I said, I would do that. When I was working with him, I wouldn't mm. like, I'm on patrol. Hey, let's go check out the subway You ever tunnel. tell somebody, hey, you know, to get off the platform, go in the tunnel, man, get out of here. No, no, <laughs> no. Well, you would see that, There's guys. No, look, look, you see how many people are living there? You can find a nice spot, man. Right. Just, <laughs> what are you sitting on the platform here? Get out of here. But doesn't transit also have the extra uh, hazard of getting uh, steel dust in their lungs if Huge. they worked out for 20 years? Uh, not even has. 20 years. I, I remember, you know, if you were working a couple, you know, like I said, I was four, two, and eight, you could be, you get a train one. The way it would do, you'd stand roll call at like 7.30 and you had to get out to your train. It might take an hour. One night you're in Brooklyn, another night you're in the Bronx, another night Manhattan or Queens, you know. So you're I, basically taking a train from wherever you're, a command po- command is after you stood a roll call to wherever your line is. Right, and you get a train and run from this station to, to this there. station, and you ride back and forth on those stops. But it could take an hour to get out there. And if you're in a, a sub, uh, underground train station for a week, you you come out, you blow your nose, and it's brown. You know, it's oh, black. Man, you know, you're getting gross. that steel. That's so, where you're working. That's the Some, steel dust from the brakes of the train all the time. They're just commuting you're there one way, hours. but you're there for eight right. hours. Right. So the and you by yourself though. On that or no? I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure if that happened. I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, I, I know that was uh, you know something that was definitely there. But I remember being in the police academy. You know, because you went through. Tri agency tests. He went through the police academy, and one of my instructors was a uh, was a transit sergeant, and we were a transit company because when I came on, they kept you know previous to my coming on class, transit guys would just be peppered in a regular academy class. You'd I have remember, a transit yeah. guy or a housing you guy. You guys were separated from but us. We were separated because we were the first class to get the nine millimeters. Bratton was the chief of yeah. department of transit, so we got nine millimeters. So they kept us all together for the training, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we went out to Long Island, uh, a shooting range out in Nassau County for the training. Yeah, is that amazing? The NYPD it. wouldn't let you guys use the range. They wouldn't let us use because, the range. And, but 
bullshit. Right? And even even more so when we had the, the nine millimeter because the Dinkins administration didn't want us to have it. Right. They made us modify the magazine. So you had they put a metal stint in the magazine so you couldn't carry more than ten rounds in the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it was just a modification and you didn't use the hollow points, we use full metal jacket, which is, in my opinion, again, it's just my opinion, crazy in the city because a full metal jacket, you if you shoot somebody, stuff, it'll go yeah. through somebody. So, whereas the hollow point has that, you know, it expands, so it's not going to go through somebody and, you know, hit somebody down the street. Or if you're in the subway, it's, it, you know, the hollow point hits a, a ter- uh, the platform, it disintegrates, it breaks into pieces, it doesn't ricochet around. So, mm-hmm. there's some really reasonable scientific reasons to for doing that, it. Yeah. So, that's when, you know, it obviously changed again in 94 when the administrations changed and Bratton became police commissioner and everybody went on board with it. Well, you know, I remember that, you talk about the history of firearms. Scott Goodell uh, was killed in a 101 precinct in, I think it was Far Rockaway, reloading his gun. Uh, and he got shot, you know, where they say never bury your head in the, right, right, in the gun. Right. The perp came up and he, he was reloading and he got killed. And that was one of the, they said, we got to go to nine millimeters. Right this right is now, ridiculous. Right. And I think that was one of the incidents that made them go to nine millimeters. Yeah, I was only in transit, like I said, about two and a half years. I did the TPF thing for about two years. And then I went to District 1, which is in Manhattan, Columbus Circle. Um, and from there, they yeah, came but out. all the time you were working by yourself. A lot of times, so you, you would get a train run depending I on where it was. It might be you'd stand roll call and, it, and like, okay, you're riding the A train through, you know, the Far Rockaway, you know, through. So they would give you a two man patrol, but most of them were solo. But you would have a, a really he heavy on, one that be done when he wound up uh, switching and coming into onto the city job, which is what you did. What were the differences between working by yourself? And then working with a partner. It, it was a huge difference. And, and the comic, the humor that we talk about, you know, guys would break your chops. Hey, the old police, transit this. And and we go back at them and say, listen, you've been working in a precinct for three years, guy, you know, and great. But here's your, I remember one of my partners would always say, hey, you're on your little square piece of concrete on your, uh, you know, on the sidewalk. You know, you're riding by yourself. You got to learn how to talk to people. If you're on yeah. a train by yourself. And you go on a roll call and say, okay, the radios aren't working from here to here. We're going to do dual patrols. So you're on a radio on a train. You know, in the seven five precinct, and you know you, you have no radio when you're out by yourself. You can't be you know the wild guy. Hey, fuck you! And yeah, I'm gonna no, knock no, you you gotta, know to you gotta learn how to yeah, talk to people yeah, and still be yeah. authoritative. You know, so that was a big thing that that's I learned. It's very interesting. You know, and it was a different. It was a different perspective. Not taken away from precinct cops. Obviously, you learn, but you 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 always had you know a quicker access if you were by mm-hmm. yourself. So you had to learn how to do that, and that was important. And there was a guy. I don't know if he coined the phrase, and uh, but it was funny. It came out. You know, you always had. I'm sure you guys ran into these guys too that were, you know, always super aggressive and like, you know, boisterous and and would escalate something that didn't need to be escalated. Right, exactly. You're like, guy, what are you doing? You're talking about Bill? Yeah. No, no, <laughs> not at all, not at all. But it, it is related in a way. And the guy came out with this acronym. He goes, ah, that guy's a FLID. I go, Flid, what the hell's a Flid? He goes, fucking Long Island dick. You know? <laughs> I heard that term later. Actually, <laughs> I was like, oh, I know what you're talking about. That later now. <laughs> Not that all guys are going yeah. that way, but there was only, like, yeah. one guy coined yeah, it, right. and that was it. It was a stereotype, man. It was like man. the Queens Marines, right? Same <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. You know, no offense to the Long Island guys. I mean, I'm just saying. You know, it's yeah, just, no, it's, it's true. This guy I coined thought about it, but you're right. <laughs> because most of the time you'll say, you know, just from being a city person and living in the city, um, there is a different way that you talk to people, you know? It's not like you're going to be able to, you know, go home and not bump into these people again. You might right. bump into them again. Sure. So there's a certain, it's a, it's a little bit different the way you talk to it, people. But, you know, how you use your voice is very important, especially in Yeah, like I used to like to sing to my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I have a funny story regarding that. When I when I got out of transit, I did the lateral transfer in 1994. They came out with a lateral transfer bill that if you got 
you know, you took the triage test and you didn't want to go to transit, then you could you could apply to transfer without having to retake the test. Previously, yeah, you had to retake the police test and then go to the police academy again for like yeah, three weeks. So, ridiculous. so they came out with lateral transfer. So I lateral transferred and then I got into NYPD like I like and I got assigned to the 2-4 on the Upper West Side. And when I was on, I'm on a foot post. I don't know if they do foot posts anymore, but I was on a foot post on like Amsterdam Avenue and I was looking for a collar and nothing heavy going on. It was like a 4-12 to and they have all these trespass affidavit buildings there because there's a lot of drug what? activity. Trespass affidavit program. So what it would be is if you have a building that has a lot of problems in it, the owner of the building would sign up with the district attorney of that borough and oh, say, listen, okay. if anybody's mm-hmm. caught in my building that doesn't belong there and doing anything, you know, yeah. even if they're not doing illegal activity, if they don't know anybody or have a legitimate purpose, I, I want to prosecute them for trespassing. Yeah. This is a misdemeanor, and you don't have to get in co- contact with them they just sign an affidavit that they give the district attorney, and it's one of the buildings, and it's mm-hmm. posted. Don't come in here. It's you could be arrested. So if you're looking for a collar, you go to these buildings and you scope them out. It's almost like being in the transit room. You go half a block down. You watch who comes in and out of the building. You do a vertical. You see somebody in there. I watch. I watch a guy go in, in and out. People are in and out. So there's drug sales going on. So I go in. I stop a guy as he's coming out, and uh, you know I, I go through the whole thing. I have a list of the tenants. It's not a big building. It's like a five story walk up, like three or four apartments on each floor. So I go through, hey, you know, explain, you know, why I'm stopping him, and, uh, you know, does he know anybody in the building? Because yeah, I know somebody in, you know, five J. You know, there is no five J in the building, so obviously <laughs> you don't know anybody there. You know, do you have a name? No, you know, <laughs> mistake so, number one. <laughs> right. Okay. So all right, you're under arrest, and he, he doesn't. He's got the look in his eye, like he, he's thinking about it. But then he turns around. I put cuffs on him. I call for a car. Car comes and picks me up. And I bring him in, and he, he I run him. He's got a couple of collars, but at the time he qualifies for a DAT, a, a desk appearance ticket. He can get a ticket and come back to court in like 30 days. You don't days. have to bring him down right. to court and spend the whole. Right. So we draw up the case, and it gets mount, you know, sent down. And as I'm walking him out, bring him up to the desk officer. He gets his property back. He gets his ticket. The sergeant tells him, "Here it is. You know what? You got to come back." I'm walking him out the door, and he turns to me and goes, "Hey, officer, you know, not for nothing, man. You treated me okay, but I got to tell you, when you approach somebody, I thought about it." Man, you got to be a little strong, a little more forceful. Because uh-huh. I woke up, I was professional and I was in control, but I wasn't, hey, fuck you, man, stop. Yeah. And he's like, you got to come at me a little harder. Like, I thought about it. I th- and I said, I got no warrants. I didn't get any drugs on me. He goes, I'm going to run. Uh, they're going to catch me. His buddy's going to come. They're going to fucking light me up. And uh, I don't need this. I got nothing, you know? Uh-huh. But you got to be like, hey, fuck you. So I don't even think about running. And I was thinking about it. So he, yeah. I was getting an education from the perp in the street uh-huh. going, hey, not that I was soft, but he goes, you got to come a lot harder. So I don't even think about it anymore. Sort mm-hmm. of what you were just saying. A little more forceful. How you use your you voice. Know? I mean, today when they have these cameras on, too, right. what are you going to say? Sir, would you please surrender? Right. What are you not? I mean, back then it was like, let me see your hands. Put your hands out. Don't fucking move. You would say that. You know no, what I mean? Like, no, I, and I wasn't saying I was like, hello, my name's Jim Malloy. You know, <laughs> yeah. Nice I, to meet you. Can I, I arrest you, please? On it, the it, it wasn't that. But the guy thought, in his mind, he's like, ah, he's by himself. I'm thinking about it. He goes, mm-hmm. but if I came at him harder, like a little like, fuck you, don't move, is what he said to me. I'm yeah. like, I'm not going to say that unless the situation Escalates, escalated yeah. to yeah. it. You, know, I, I wanna, you don't have anywhere else to go if you uh, do, uh, especially out there doing idle threats. Right. Do that again, I'm going to lock you up. And now you realize, I can't lock him up. i got to take my daughter to her dance today. <laughs> now you're already at that point, you know? Sure. <laughs> There's a certain way you talk to people, you know, when you're trying to pretend like you're going to lock them up. But I learned a lot from my field training officer, even like when you stop somebody and, and 
you know, like stop, question, and frisk, and the escalation of, uh, of force, all these things that you, you have to be aware of. And, you know, when that became an issue with the department, and again, not to get political in any ways, but it kind of got overused by the department. And, and, and as I got into investigations, stop, question, and frisk was a huge investigative tool that got taken away from us because the department of the abuse, let's over, say overused it. Was. it. it was yeah, 600,000 yeah. stops a year. Well, but I think it was also too, because they found out that we were, uh, basically constantly updating our database that's what the pro uh, to me that's what the main problem was the stopping the questioning okay we, we're harassing them but it's the database that the aclu is against because every time you stop them you're going to get a, sure. an updated address on them a new apartment number on them and we're constantly replenishing that so it's that's what they wanted to but that was such a huge advantage like as later on i got into a squad and became a squad commander you know you get a robbery on a corner you know, one of the first things you would do is you check the UF-250 database because you're right. If, they, if it was filled out properly, you stop somebody, you'd get all their pedigree information, where they live. And one of the things you would do is, hey, there's a robbery on this corner here. I'm going to go check out whoever got stopped on that corner because odds are maybe the guy who did the robberies frequented it before. And you might get lucky. And then you look at the complaint report. You were and, you know, a squad boss in uh, – where were you a squad boss in? Well, I, I in two thousand, I, I just missed you in one of these spots I, when it, I went to the squad. You wouldn't two, want me anyway. In two thousand five, I went to the two four squad, and I was okay. there from yeah. I, that's when I <laughs> from two thousand five to well, about two thousand nine. I, I, I'm yeah. trying to do the time in my my head. Uh, Ninety nine, I went into Warrens, and I came out uh, so probably like two thousand two, and then I went into from two thousand. Then I went into the two four, and then I went to the two six after that. But I might have come by the two four to. To say what's up to the guys or whatever I did and, and bump into you. And then I also did the training. But like I said, you wouldn't have wanted me anyway. <laughs> I wasn't a bad detective. I did what I had to do. You got the number, sure. but I wasn't no, like shining star. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I do. But I wasn't going to jam you up either. <laughs> well, that's good. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what they used to say about Jim? They said, he doesn't drink the Kool-Aid. He makes it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to think I was I was a fair boss, and uh, I never threw any of my guys under the bus, and I always stood up for them. And uh, when I went to Comstat, is you know we could talk about it a little bit later with that whole process. You know anything that went on was my responsibility, and I protected the guys that work with me. And I never had a boss above me, you know, get embarrassed because of the work that you know my squad did. It always came back to me. I think you need somebody like that, a boss, to keep you in line. Everybody needs to be kept in line. Yeah, everybody's going to do what they got to do. You're going to go out every once in a while, whatever. But if your boss is also a disaster, your, your squad's in trouble. No, absolutely. You know, because then everybody's going to be. You know something? Gonna, people will always say, too many like, liberties. they'll say, oh, he's great, this guy, until you need a boss. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. oh, he's great to go out drinking with. He's a great guy. But you know something? I'd rather have Cannon or Malloy if we got a real shit storm because they're going to yeah, treat so it like a yeah, boss. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Not They're yeah. not going to go, oh, shit, what do I do? You know? Yeah, when you got a boss that's also a disaster, it's, oh, Yeah, it's man. bad. Yeah. The whole squad's a mess. Yeah, I remember you. And you know what's funny? I used to have a boss. I don't think it was... Like I said, we you you were never my boss. I don't think, uh, but I think I just missed you. But I remember well, I had one guy, and he came out of the office, and you know, with a he can he's looking around. You know how they look around. You always the bosses always look around for somebody who's not busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying. So everybody, <laughs> you know, everybody's pretending like they're busy. And if you look up or you're reading the paper, or whatever, and hey, Mayo, can you do me a favor? And he, you know, like he gave me the stuff to run, and it was a lot of stuff. So I, I ran the stuff and. I took my time with it, brought it back in. Here you go, Lou, or Sergeant, whatever. 
But then he came out like five minutes later. Oh, I forgot one more thing. Man, is it all right? Can you run this one more thing? I said, <laughs> boss, listen, I'm here for you. You're getting eight hours a week out of me. We can do two a day. We could do them all in one day. <laughs> Whatever you want. You're getting eight hours a week. And then he laughed, and then I laughed, but I was serious. <laughs> eight <laughs> hours what, a day, you mean? No, eight week. hours a week. Oh. <laughs> That's all you're getting out of me. You could take two hours a day. Uh, I'm you glad take you clarified four. that yeah. joke. Because <laughs> you work 42 hours, so yeah, yeah, I know. it's getting eight. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, like I said. Uh, but like I said, I wasn't going to jam you up. You didn't have to worry about me. And that, you know, proof is I never jammed up any boss. Nobody was ever out looking for me or where where'd he go. And I, No, I wasn't that guy. Yeah, but you didn't know what they were doing to your boss at Comstead. Who's this guy, DeMeo, with no arrests? <laughs> no, like whatever the number was. I think right. at the time we had to come up, what was it, two a month you had to come up yeah. with? Yeah. I did it. And a lot of times, you know what I used to do, though, if I had like a robbery, because I investigated robberies. If I had a robbery... And I got four guys off the robbery or six. Oh, I'm good for six months. <laughs> no, no, it was it was two a month. Yeah, yeah. I'm good for three months. <laughs> if something came along, I had to take it. I would, but I knew I'm right, good. Right. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. They keep yeah. you keep you off the, the back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to rock it. You got to ride it out, man. <laughs> you know what is so hard about the squad and for bosses is detectives have such huge egos, and especially like the ones that are in specialized units like homicide. Like, you know, I had guys like Joe the Lip that would fucking tell me what was go- what time it was. And he would say, oh, so this is what we're going to do. I'd say, Joe, go home. <laughs> Just go home. Because he was making overtime, you know. And, uh, he would like challenge, right? You know, yeah, guys, no, I, guys that challenge you right. all the time. Well, I, right? I had that and when I was in the seventh squad. We had a uh, we had a, a shooting case. And you know, long story short, it got down to it. We got the perp. We brought him in. He'd bring him in the box. Homicide squad was with us. They were working on the case. And then, because uh, we were out looking at a bunch of locations for the guy we got. So guys were dressed down and weren't wearing their suits. So one of the homicide guys, it's Manhattan South, decides, uh, all right, I can go back to the base and put his suit on before we do the interview. So we get the guy back to the box. We're waiting. And now, you know, we put the guy, he's in there and he's running to talk. He's ready to go, man. And I'm like, where is this guy, man? Call the squad. He's not there. He's like, what the fuck? You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, go in, man. Talk to him. this guy's ready to give it up. Give it up. And then like 20 minutes later, he gives it up. The squad guy comes, the homicide squad detective comes in, he's all pissed off. Oh, it's my, my case. I'm supposed to be in, in an interview. I go, listen, man, I'm not going to wait all night for you to go home and put your cufflinks on. You know, yeah. you got you to gotta come back. <laughs> you guys ready to go, man. Right. You know, let's talk. Right. And then the homicide lieutenant came in. He's like, hey, you know, that's the protocol. I go, listen, I had no problem waiting. I didn't try to circumvent him. This guy was ready to give it up. I'm not going to hold wait, it and let exactly. him change his mind, man, because he's ready to go. We're going. Uh-huh. You know, and I didn't back down from that. The guy was very upset with me, but. You know, I never understood that homicide protocol. Like, if you if it's a homicide squad, give it to the homicide squad. Let me get you know. Well, they don't take the arrest. No, they I just, know, yeah. I know. They don't take the arrest, and they also pop up whenever they want. Right. And you know, they you know, like you, you always mixing the dirt up. No, but yeah. they're they're a great help though. Like especially no, yeah yeah you know, they're a great help. And seasoned detectives, and you get the guys in a box, especially uh, you know, not that the squad guys could handle. They could, and there was a little animosity sometimes. Some squad guys are like, why do they gotta be here? You know, but. They were very helpful. And then if you had to change it up and the squad guy or whoever it is isn't making, uh, getting any headway with them, and you got these seasoned guys coming right. in from Homicide Squad that have been doing it for so much, you know, ho- hopefully. That and they got nothing else so to do longer. except for interview right. people. If all you got to do right. is interview people, you better be good at it. Right. Well, most you don't have of to do them, the paper. Well, they do a couple fives here yeah. and there, but let's, come on, man. Right. No, most of the guys in the Homicide Squad were the best interviewers in the detective bureau, I would say. You know, no, well, How doubt. would you even know that when you pick them up, though? I guess it's just from past cases, because it's not like you can create an interview scenario 
prior to put him in the um, a homicide course. You know what I'm saying? I well, mean the class. It's that. It's that. I mean the. It's that squad. like unwritten way of getting promoted, though. Like someone very rarely is going to get in a homicide squad that is completely undeserving. Because to get that not person, you, that homicide boss is reaching out to that squad. Hey, this guy's on the list, maybe uh, the short list to get in here. Is, you know, give me the behind the scenes on him, you know? Yeah, so I know. You're going to lose your I worked, best guy. I worked with know? good detectives, and and one of the guys I worked with. You know, socially, he was a bit of a disaster, but man, he was like Columbo with these cases, man. He looked at his desk, there was a thousand tiny little pieces of paper, each, you know, and he put it all together like a puzzle, and before you know it, he made the collar. He was always making, and he got into the homicide uh, squad, so. Oh, you talk about Alex? Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he was very cerebral, too, more oh, so than most the detectives, best. right? The best. Yeah, he had. Uh, we used to have these National Geographics. Uh, we had a stack <laughs> of these magazines. And then whenever we had a perp in the box, and uh, he'd say, you mind if I talk to him? Like, Go ahead. And he'd bring in a couple of magazines, or if it was his own perp, suspect, whatever, he'd bring in these National Geographics. And he goes, uh, you like to read? And he goes, yeah. He goes, check this out. It'll change your life. <laughs> 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 I always thought that was the rudest fucking thing in the world he could oh, possibly God. do. But I also thought it was genius, man. <laughs> they get oh. fascinated looking at tigers and... Oh, and <laughs> Africans and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't even know what sense it made. I just right. thought of that. Oh, hey, if man. it worked, <laughs> check this out. It'll I'll tell you, you know, some of the squads though, too, the like the real busiest squads in Manhattan North, like the two three, they were like a homicide squad. They had great no, yeah. detectives. They were like they didn't need us to do their Come interviews because in. you know they, they had a detective Pat. Oh yeah, they yeah. had Delessio. You mm -hmm. know they had all Billy Dunn. They had all these really great detectives. And but they didn't mind when we went there to assist them because they they knew what we did. You know some squads that actually the slower squads that didn't get a lot of homicides. They were like, hey, this is our homicide. You know, and they didn't want right. the help. You know. Yeah, I I, I was fortunate enough that I, I never had that issue really. I think every squad that I worked in when we had a homicide, it was it was welcome to have the homicide squad in because you still have your, you know, I I describe people. Uh, squad work is like trying to stay dry under a waterfall with a toothpick umbrella because it just keeps coming in. No matter what you do, it keeps coming yeah, in. Yeah, it's like a post office. It just man. never ends. So when you have a heavy case, you still have other cases coming in. And that well, guy catching it, a homicide man. is out of the catching order for a couple of days. That means everybody else in the squad's picking up all those cases. But for that first two days, you're really doing nothing else but working at homicide, even with the homicide squad there. And then once it settles down a little bit and you get a direction. Homicide squad is there to help out. You got the case detective. First and then everybody 48. else is trying to catch up, man. You know, So it really knocks you off your rails that, that first couple of days. I mean, you get used to doing it, but they're a welcome sight. Without a there doubt. are, like, like you mentioned about working together with uh, your squad. That, that was uh, everybody on board and everybody working together. That was a beautiful thing to see. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody working towards that one goal to make this apprehension. You know, I tell was, you, there was, was nothing good. better, though, than getting a great case uh, that you all worked together and, and you solved it. That yeah, especially yeah. place like the 19th, it, it wasn't the uh, precinct captain or the inspector. It was the chief of detectives and the police commissioner yeah. who were calling about yeah. the case every day. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you were like, oh, man, look at all these people involved in this. And a lot of times it's hard it to sucked. be a criminal because think about it. You did one bad thing. You committed a homicide. Uh, it's for you by yourself. But now you got 25 people thinking That's of right. a way to catch you. Yeah. You could think of a couple of different ways to hide, to get away. But when you got all these people, all these resources all co coming. Uh, coming together, combined, and they're all thinking about where you could be, it's hard. You're, you're going to get caught. That's yeah. why every time I see, especially now with videos and stuff like that, 
No, we, we had a great case in the 19th, speaking of the homicide squad that helped us. And it, it unraveled and came together so quickly. It was a 90 year old Holocaust survivor, Felix Brinkman, I think his name yep. was, he was an Upper East Side guy. And he liked to have the ladies come up. He'd pay these young yeah, girls to that. come up to his apartment, have a beer with them. I mean, just to hang out company wise. And this one woman would come up and she noticed he had a couple of safes in his apartment. So one day when she arranged to come up, she called a couple of her friends, two brothers. He's, uh, I think their names were Curtis, Elijah and something. Hasib. Uh, Hasib. Hasib and Aljula Cuts. Cuts. Yeah. That's their name. And, yeah. and, uh, they came over and, and when she came up, uh, she called from downstairs on her phone to his phone with the, do- the doorman to let him up. So when we got there, um, they get upstairs, they have a beer. He's like, who, who are these guys here? And uh, they're, oh, they're just my friends. They're going to have a beer with you. And then they decide they're going to rob him. We're your safes. And they grab him. They put him in like a chokehold. But he's 90 years old. And they end up crushing his larynx. He dies. So he's, he goes out of the picture. So He had the tattoo on his arm from Auschwitz. Wow. He survived Auschwitz. So they load up yeah. his, uh, his, his two like safes. They're not big safes, but these two safes. And they put them on a chair. And they wrap them up. And they bring them to the elevator and take downstairs to the garage. He has his car. And they take his car. And they take it up to the Bronx to uh, one of their apartments. And and they try to break him open. What's in there? And he had really nothing in there. It was like virtually... No, I think they took the wrong safe. They only took one. They took the wrong right. one. They I, took the one without the money. Right, but even, even the money he had, he didn't have a lot of money. No, it wasn't he like didn't. he was a really wealthy guy. He was like in this apartment forever. A little, a little footnote to that. In the 80s, he owned the disco, the Adam's Apple, which yeah. was a famous disco on 61st and 1st Avenue. And Bo Deedle worked his security there. Wow. So so how the case, right away we go to the doorman. Yeah, these, this girl, she comes once in a while. He doesn't know her name, but he says, hey, she called. So we dump the phone to the apartment and we get her number on it. So we get to identify who she is. We go speak to her. She identifies the two brothers she called. because She's now, she knows he's there. Like, I didn't do it. They did it. So we go to the, one of their apartments literally that day. And, you know, the door opens up and there's the safe, like busted open in plain view right there, man. Mm-hmm. So we grab that guy and there's another one that was working. It used to be, it's a Dallas BBQ right off the Deegan now, but it used to be a, uh, a brother Jimmy's. Yeah. And, Jimmy's uh, Cafe. It was Dallas, Jimmy's, Jimmy's Bronx Cafe. And one of the guys, we set up on it because one of the guys was supposed to go up there. He was going to meet there later. And we went up there and he showed up and we ended up picking him up. So we got all three pieces like that same day. Yeah, I was day. there with it, Mark Worthington and yeah. I called Tommy Ryan and he came up right. there. Right, great yeah. case. Tommy Ryan, great case. Some great detectives yeah. in the 19th and you guys came. I think it was Latrenta that went in the box with one of my guys. Uh, and It was uh, actually Worthington. Worthington and got the yeah. guy to give up. And the guy he got the guy to admit, he didn't tell him he was dead yet, but he told him that, you know, he got him to admit that he was touching his neck Um because he was checking to see his pulse because the guy wasn't breathing. And the guy wasn't breathing because he choked him to death, but he didn't mention that to him. He's well, just like, know, yeah, he got him to admit touching his, I got your DNA on his neck, he said to him. And the guy's like, oh, it's there because I was just checking his pulse. Yeah, like with someone, <laughs> he, he, I remember I was listening to him confess and he he was a very gentle murderer. The way he murdered him was very gentle, you know. I just brought him to the ground and I didn't mean to hurt him, you know. It was, I was very gentle the way I murdered him, you know. <laughs> But that's one of those cases that, you know, you definitely need that help from the homicide squad because there were so many moving that parts to it. That was a great case. Man. And it came together yeah. so quick. You got this lead, this lead, this lead. Well, they lead, were using his credit cards yeah. and we had him on video using the credit cards. Yeah, it was a lot. The thing was, the prost- she was a prostitute. She lawyered up. So, and then after she lawyered up, they gave her um, a, a proffer. They gave queen her a proffer. A yeah, queen for a day. And then she started talking, but to trying to keep herself out of it. And it still took us a while to uh, identify the brothers. Right. And they were, I remember the Hasib and Ajula Cuts. And there was like two other guys involved, I think, that were, I don't know if they drove the car or whatever, but 
it wound up, yeah, that was an amazing case. That was great. Those are the cases that you really, you know. No, you love those cases, yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's good work, man. If you could do it all over again, would you use the bullet at work? No. <laughs> You'd be like Steve McQueen. No. no. Come on, really. No. If you could go in, Steve McQueen if you could go in now <laughs> as uh, as the boss, your squad boss, and, you know, go out and, like, hunt on some capers, you wouldn't take the car? No, I wouldn't, wouldn't take the car. Not that car, no. Oh, that would be badass, man. <laughs> lieutenant getting out of the car. He's got the leather jacket on, the biker jacket on. He's got his uh, lieutenant shield around his neck. They're, they're raising the crime scene tape for you. Let me get out of the bullet. <laughs> hey, the, the 19th squad is the, probably the most political squad in the entire city, right? Oh, absolutely. The people calling you on the phone every day. It's probably forget about it. It was funny how I that's got... That's where you ended up? Well, that's the- no. That was the second squad I went to. I did four years in the 2-4, and it was funny going back because I, when, I, when I lateraled over, I went to the 2-4 as a cop. So that was in two th- that was in 1994, and then full circle, I, I made sergeant in 97, went to Midtown North in 2001. I went up to, uh, I made lieutenant, went to the 2-8. So I was up in the 2-8 in 2001, and uh, 2005, I, I wanted to go to the squad. Uh, let me back up. When I was in the 2-4... You know, I went through, I was on patrol, foot posts, and then I did a conditions unit, and I worked with this sergeant, Eric Maricotta, great guy. I, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but uh, really animated character. I could talk for hours about <laughs> him, is man. A good guy. And then, uh, like I said, I was kind of active as a cop there, so as a, a crime spot opened up, uh, Billy was the anti-crime boss, and I, I guess he went to Maricotta and, and, and suggested that I should go to the, to the unit. Maricotta mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of recommended me to Bill, so I went to work with Bill, and uh in, in anti-crime and then we were very successful learned a lot of stuff uh you know doing anti-crime work you know robberies and uh grand larceny we actually stuff. had a really good anti-crime team fabulous there. anti-crime yeah, team yeah. and in that process uh i ended up going up to a rip temporarily and at that time i was on the pro- a robbery list. a robbery, robbery investigator yeah and from there if you're there 18 months you can get a detective shield become a detective mm-hmm. but what the job was getting wise at that point and they started rotating people in there that were on promotion lists so you would be that up was there such bullshit so wasn't you would it? they would never have that? to promote you because they you know you get promoted within a year or a year and a half you'd never get your shield and now you're a sergeant so then they would rotate you know someone else in there and yeah, then yeah, yeah. then they came out with a waiver or we'll put you in the rip but you got to sign a waiver to go there meaning you can be up there for longer than 18 months and not get promoted. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were trying to limit the amount of detectives at the time. But uh, So again, I got a taste of the squad, but it was only for a few months until I got promoted. But I always wanted to be an investigator and get into mm-hmm. that detective side of it. And then I did that in 2005. From 2005 to 2009, I was in the 2-4. And back there, you know, I knew, again, it's funny, you're locking guys up. I'm like, man, I locked this did guy you, up in 1994. Errol, were you in charge of supervising Errol? No, he, he he had moved out to the 2-0 at that time. Oh, he I thought he went to Central Park. Oh, Central Park, you're right. That would have been, yeah. been interesting. <laughs> I knew I Errol. Would've... Yeah, I no, knew I Errol. He'd come want... by a lot. Yeah, he would come back a lot. Errol, Errol was uh, was an interesting guy, man. And uh, containing him and, and keeping an eye on him would have been... <laughs> full-time job. Would have been a full-time job. Yeah, you would have you would have spent a lot of time yeah, babysitting Errol. him. Well, without a doubt. I knew yeah, Errol. Yeah. I knew of Great Errol. guy. Yeah. Great guy. If you wanted to, like you said before, if you wanted to, <laughs> remember you said, boss, if you, if you wanted to go out for a drink and you hang out, you wanted to bang around, <laughs> great guy. We want to do police work? <laughs> Not so much. Exactly. Well, anyway, we're done with the first hour, man. And we're going to come back with our uh, part two with, uh, with Jimmy Malloy here. And that was a great first hour, man. 
Thank you so much. Oh, my we're going to learn some me. more. He's sure. actually a little bit too sophisticated for a cop, isn't he? <laughs> Comes across too smart. No, he actually is making us look good, man. <laughs> you don't want, you don't want, he want a couple of me and a lot of them. A lot he of doesn't Jimmy's. say any D's, those, or Dems or anything like nah, that. No, this, this is the guy you want right here. I'm a guy who squeezes in. <laughs> All right, we'll be back with part two with Jimmy Malloy. Thank you, guys. Cool. Thank you.